morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Great. Awesome. Now, Claudia, you you take another step in tomorrow. treatment starting tomorrow. Pray for our sister Claudia tomorrow. She starts a new phase in, in her treatment tomorrow, so please pray for her. You look good, and your spirit is great. I can see that from here. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, um, pray for this country. Pray for this world. Pray for this country and this country's place in this world. If we have a history left ahead of us, that history will look back on this time as one of our major conflicts, major trials. Dan and Kim Cecil are in Kansas, trying to get back home, pray for them and a safe journey. Although Bernie and I don't want to give their kitty cat back, but that's, that's, all, that's all right. Um, and pray for Jean. She has good days and bad days, uh, problems with a sciatic nerve with her back. Spoke to her a day or so ago, and it looked like she was doing pretty good. Then she, the very next day, she was having a rough day, and uh, she's having problems with one of her legs now. So she's not going to get out of the um, rehabilitation unit there at um, Dorothy Love until Dan and Kim come back. And then she's going to get uh, therapy there in their home. So please continue to, to pray for her and for her recovery. Anything else? Well, I know I'm preaching to the choir, as they say, but on the note of praying for our country, when you pray, when you pray for our country, you're also praying for the world at large. You, you are praying for the free world. Uh, and there's a, millions and millions of people around this world who are counting on us and who are looking to us. You know how much of a big history nut I am. I've loved it all of my life, and it was my career for a very long time. And sometimes I think in some way it should still be a part of my, my life's work for obvious reasons. But uh, I've been reading and studying a, a little on the life of Sir Winston Churchill lately, who was the great statesman champion of the free world during the Second World War. And we're all familiar with one of his most magnificent speeches for which he is well known, for England to take her stand alone. We will fight them on the landing grounds, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight in the fields, we will fight in the streets, we will never surrender. But we don't often remember the ending of that speech, the full speech, the complete speech. What he says towards the end of that speech is this, he makes a comment that even if England is invaded by Nazi Germany and most of the British Isles falls, that the British Navy will continue the fight across the Atlantic in the dominions of Britain. And he closes the speech with this. Until the new world, with all of its power and its might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. The world is counting on us. So when we fight for freedom and liberty here in the continental United States, 
We are fighting for the freedom and liberty of the world. Let's rise to the fight, brothers and sisters in Jesus, and fight the good fight to the end and beyond by whatever means just and necessary that our Lord approves and deems necessary. With that, I take you to some folks who very much are looking to us and counting on us, we brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them in any way that we possibly can. These are folks in the country of Mauritania. Uh, Mauritania is on the uh, north, northwest coast of Africa. Their designation by the Voice of the Martyrs is restricted. I think that's the toughest the designation that Voice of the Martyrs has for countries in which there is persecution against Christians restricted. Mauritania is amongst the world's poorest countries and also has a significant corruption problem. Located in the Maghreb region of Africa's western coast, it is an Islamist country with three distinct, pardon me, distinct people groups, Fulani, White Moor, and Black Moor. Slavery still exists within tribal groups with black Christians commonly subservient to Arabs. There are churches in Mauritania, but they are relatively new and need leadership development and training. In 2009, an American missionary was martyred in Mauritania, and many mission agencies subsequently pulled their workers from the country for safety's sake. Some Christian workers, however, are starting to return, as dangerous as that is. Mauritania has been staunchly Islamic for more than a thousand years, and the training needs among indigenous leaders as well as security risks for both native Christians and foreign missionaries remain obstacles to reaching Muslims with the gospel. Mauritania is nearly 100% Sunni Muslim. Families, tribes, communities, and the government do persecute those who leave Islam in Mauritania. Fewer than 150 believers are known to live in this country, and only foreigners are permitted to worship openly. All indigenous Christians converted from Islam, it is illegal. Jobs are difficult to obtain in the very poor economy, especially for Christians. Believers have been arrested in the past. It is extremely difficult for Christians to get Bibles, which must be hand-carried into the country at great risk. No Bibles are printed in the country, and the importation of Bibles is restricted. Voice of the Martyrs supplies audio Bibles providing training for Christians and supports the underground church. So please pray for these folks in a very, very ancient land, which has been troubled for a very, very long time. Please remember, brothers and sisters in Mauritania. Yes, ma'am. I could just add, we kind of have a link to that here in Sydney. Many Freshway workers are from Mauritania. Can you say that again? Many workers at Freshway are from Mauritania. You probably see workers, some of the Africans you see around here are from Mauritania. Mauritania, really? That and Senegal, we have a lot of workers from there. Senegal and Mauritania. Wow. I used to come in contact with a lot of them at the bank. Really? Mauritanians here in Sydney. Pray for them. They've got to have family back there. Oh, they do. A lot of the guys would come over separately. They'd share an apartment together. Right. And you'd see over time, they, they were very frugal with their money, and they'd start bringing the families over Pray for them. They need the gospel too. As do their families back in the old world.
Till the new world with all of its power and its might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Victory. Victory in Jesus. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, Ruler of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray for our brothers and sisters from the ancient land of Mauritania. And we pray for folks from Mauritania who have found their way to the United States and to this little community in Ohio. We pray for the salvation of one and all. We pray that the gospel will be preached to one and all, that they will hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the ultimate good news, the good news which Paul gives us in a brilliant and wonderful way this morning, and that they will be saved. As Paul teaches us this morning, we are hapless and hopeless without the Redeemer God. But in the Redeemer God, there is more than hope enough. For you are the God of hope, the God who is rich in mercy, who loved his fallen human creatures when we least deserved it and offered all the hope that we could ever need. We praise you for who you are and what you are. And we do pray for our country in a dark time, and we pray that you will help us to rise to the occasion to defend the principles among which this country was founded and to keep freedom and liberty alive in this nation and alive in this world for the millions around the world who are watching us and who are counting on us and who have put their hopes upon us. Let us do our duty by one another, by you first and foremost, and by them to keep freedom alive for one and all, to be the city on the hill, Perhaps this world's last best hope. Help us to do our duty, come what may, wherever that duty may take us and lead us. Help us to follow in the footsteps of the martyrs, if that is what is necessary. Those who are being martyred around the world for the kingdom of Christ and for freedom and liberty, even as I'm praying this prayer. And who are we that we should not follow in their footsteps? There's a hymn writer wrote long ago, why should I be taken to the skies on flowery beds of ease when others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? We know who our Redeemer is. We know who our High King of Heaven is and we know where we are going when this side of eternity becomes the next. Thank you for making us, redeeming us, and making us part of your plan that no matter what we encounter in this life, which is half battleground and half pilgrimage, oh, the high holy days come hereafter for an eternity that knows no end to glorify you, know you, experience you, encounter you, and enjoy you and your people and your perfect world forever. Forever. World without end, amen, as the ancient theologians would say. We pray for Claudia. We pray... For her treatments this week, give wisdom, great expertise and skill to the medical technicians who are treating her. We know her soul is filled with your word and filled with your spirit. Bless her and keep her. Heal her of this illness. Help her to be a magnificent, shining example for life in Jesus for those around her and for those she will encounter. We pray for the safety of Kim and Dan on their way home, and we trust that they've had a wonderful time with their family, with their granddaughter. We pray for Shelley and her mom. We pray for their situation and circumstances there with a lot of ill folks to care for. I pray for everyone who is watching, who is listening. 
Reveal yourself to them in the way you know best in the situations and circumstances that they experience and encounter. Draw them closer to you, Lord. Draw all of us closer to you. Reveal yourself to us, who and what you are and what we are to be in you. Bless this proclamation of your word this morning, a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel of Jesus in this short passage. And help us to appropriate it, appreciate it, apply it to our life, and bring others to this passage to do the same. Forgive us of our sins, our faults, and our failures. Pick us up, clean us up by the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and by the presence of your Spirit and by the truth of your word. Pick us up and clean us up and send us on our way as faithful Christian soldiers as the book of Ephesians teaches. Being pruned and groomed and seasoned and prepared for the world to come. Please hear our imperfect prayers, our fumbling prayers. O Lord God, God, the God who, one and only God, who is rich in extravagant, lavish mercy by which you have shown us. Thank you for this wonderful book and all that the inspired apostle teaches us. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring honor and glory to you, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. May the meditations of all of our hearts, the words of my mouth, be pleasing to you, O Lord. As we like to pray, you who are our only hope, as Paul teaches here, and you who are more than hope enough. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join me for the reading of the word of the Lord? The portion of Paul's letter that we'll begin to unpack today is another very long sentence <laughs> in the original Greek. Paul is the king of run-on sentences, as an English teacher would say. But he can get away with that in Koine Greek two millennia ago. We're going to embark on the next passage actually as a section as we're beginning Ephesians chapter 2 or the first 10 verses. The bad news and the good news, the gospel, the full news. You have to get the bad news first in order to understand, appreciate, and appropriate the good news. And if you want a passage to bring people to that really cleanly, wonderfully, powerfully gives you the gospel, here it is, folks. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And in the original Greek, again, it's all one sentence, so it's hard to break it down into sections. So be patient with me as I attempt to do that. Today will be verses 1 to 4. Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as all the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And we will stop there. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. God, who is rich in mercy, the good news after we received the bad news, the dilemma of the fallen human condition. 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it's all about the gospel, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ according to divine plan. God saving fallen human creatures. A wonderful salvation and redemption passage. The gospel in a nutshell, if I may use that expression. Or as theologians for many, many centuries would say, here you have clearly taught salvation by grace through faith. Salvation and redemption of fallen human creatures by the grace of God through faith in the work of God the Son, according to the divine plan that Paul has been bringing to our attention. First of all, we are greeted with the hard facts, the hard reality, the hard truth, the hard diagnosis before we can receive treatment, the treatment that we need. Paul brings to our attention, and by the way, this letter is written to Christian believers. He's writing to Christian believers. He, remind, he is reminding the Ephesians here. He is reminding us of what we were before our salvation, of what we were before the new birth. The hopelessness and helplessness without Christ. That's verses 1 to 3. Then hope, all the hope we could ever hope for and need. Hope, salvation, new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 4 to 10. So again, this passage, uh, 2, 1 to 10, that we'll be studying this week and next week, it's all one sentence in the original Greek. And again, it's a wonderful presentation and summation of the gospel of Jesus. Pay close attention to this, because this is a wonderful uh, passage that you can take to others to clearly walk them through the good news of the person and work of Christ. But folks, you have to be brave enough and honest enough to give them the bad news first. How can a person possibly understand and appreciate and appropriate the good news if they don't get the bad news first? The bad news is part of the gospel too. People have to be made aware of the reality of the human condition in rebellion against the Creator, Redeemer, God. Then you can give them the good news. Without God, there is no hope. With God, there's all the hope that a person could possibly ask for and want and need. Let me give you, before we dive into the text, as I say, uh, I will give you something of a, uh, the main theme, a summation of the main theme, the main idea, a summary here. These verses offer the awesome contrast and difference of the awful situation of sinful and fallen humanity before the new birth. He's reminding Christian believers of what we were before our new birth. He's reminding Christian believers of what we were before our salvation experience in Christ. And this is contrasted, of course, with new life, with salvation, with hope in Christ. The life that believers have now. This experience Paul describes as passing from death, spiritual death, into life, spiritual life by virtue of the person and work of Christ, by virtue of His atoning work in our behalf, by virtue of His resurrection and His exaltation. This salvation experience is entirely 100% and beyond a work of God and a gift of God. That's very hard for people to appreciate. And to adhere to. We had an alarm go off. I don't know why the alarm went off. Thank you for checking that. 
This salvation experience is entirely a gift from God, a gift of God. It is not something that we work towards ourselves, that we achieve for ourselves in any way, shape, or form. This gift raises the believer and enables the believer to live the life God has called them, us, to live. And the life God meant for humanity in the first place, before humanity's fall. So, verse 1, the hard news, the reminder. And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. First phrase, let's unpack. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The bad news first, the fatal human condition, the fatal human dilemma. This is what we all are. This is humanity's fix. What's to be done? Right? I'm going to quote the ESV Study Bible a number of times this morning, as well as uh, Dr. S.M. Bow's commentary on the book of Ephesians, which is a magnificent commentary. But Dr. S.M. Bow also wrote the study Bible notes on the book of Ephesians in the ESV Study Bible. So I'll give you a few quotes from both of, of his works this morning. I always like to make use of that ESV Study Bible because a number of you folks here have it and folks that are watching have it. He writes, and oh how true this is, the concept, the idea, the expression, God helps those who help themselves, that is not from the Bible. You will not find that anywhere in sacred scripture. I believe Benjamin Franklin slipped it into Poor Richard's Almanac two centuries ago, if memory serves me correct, but you will not find that concept in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's not from the Bible. The origins of that concept are actually taken from pagan ancient Greeks. As Paul emphasizes in this section, the truth of the matter is the exact opposite. God helps helpless humanity, and only God can truly help helpless humanity. Even more, he writes, even more he helps his enemies who have transgressed his holy moral law. Human beings as son and daughters of Adam, Adam and Eve, who rebelled and sinned against God, enter the world in sin with a sin nature. They enter this world spiritually dead. You may be born physically, but you are spiritually dead. They, we, before our conversion, have absolutely no inclination or responsiveness towards God, and therefore no ability to please God or to have a right and proper relationship with Him. The purpose for which humanity was created when Paul says trespasses, he means violations of divine commandments. When he writes sins, he means offenses, deliberate, willful offenses against God in thought, word, or deed. End quote. With a few of my comments thrown in there, pardon me. So Paul begins here by reminding Christian believers of their terrible plight before conversion, before salvation experience, the new birth. We were dead. Dead is a very blunt word. In Koine Greek, it is nekros. It means dead as in a corpse, a carcass. A dead person, a dead animal, a dead body. And obviously he uses it here metaphorically. Here, not physically dead, although spiritual death does most certainly lead to physical death. He means spiritually dead, dead in the soul. The worst kind of death and the most permanent death. Alienation from the God who is life and the God who gives life. The connection of human sin and rebellion against the Creator-Redeemer God is proclaimed all throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity, 
onwards. In one of Paul's most blunt statements about the fallen condition of humanity with which we must all be confronted and come to terms with, he writes to the Roman congregation, the Roman Christians, in his letter to the Romans, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Due to the original sin of the original human beings, we are all born into this. We are all born with this sin nature, this sin nature of rebellion. Now Jesus, our hope, our Savior, Jesus, who the New Testament calls the second Adam, the second representative head of the human race, the one who lived the only truly perfect human life, perfect in his humanity as well as his deity. He came into this world without a sin nature. Therefore, he came to set us free, to be the sin bearer in our behalf. He came to save us, to give us life, spiritual life, to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's the good news I'm getting ahead of myself. More of the bad news, unfortunately. First... Now, I know this may seem like a trite, uh, cheap comment, and I, I hope it's not, but it is worth saying. Paul does say, you were dead. And somehow we twist that into, oh, no, we're actually just a little sick. We're, we're just ill. A little therapy, a little self-help. We'll be all right. No, you won't. We're dead. We need resurrection, we need resuscitation, we need life, we need a savior, a redeemer, a life giver. A corpse, a dead body cannot help itself. A carcass cannot save itself. Only God can give life. We are not sick in need of therapy and social engineering and all the rest. We are dead corpses in need of life, a new birth. Only the life and only the new birth that only the one true living God can give. When he writes, dead in your trespasses, the word trespasses is paraptoma. Paraptoma. It means a fault, an offense, to do evil, to do wrong, to violate a statue or a law. Here, the divine moral law of God. Paraptoma, trespass, you can um, interpret this as to fall away from what is right or true. A denial of reality. What is true, what is right. All of this willful and deliberately. In other words, rebellion against the Creator God. Trespasses and sins. Sins is that ubiquitous Koine Greek word, hamartia, which we always translate as sin. Hamartia, quite literally translated, means to miss the mark. In Greco-Roman literature, it often referred to a hunter or a soldier missing the mark with his spear or his javelin, or an archer, a bowman, missing the mark. Metaphorically, as it is used, it means some sort of moral miss or failure. Some sort of truth miss or failure. Some sort of aberration from what is true. A deliberate departure or error from truth. A willful missing of the mark, as the apostles use the word. This is the hapless, helpless condition of human sin and rebellion, which Paul reminds us we were all in. We all had. We're all guilty. As one theologian so accurately expressed a few years ago, we are all cosmic traitors against the high king of heaven. God help us. What is to be done? Verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course, according to the course of this world. The ways of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air 
the spirit that is now working in the sons. The ladies aren't left out either. That's an inclusive expression there. The sons and daughters, the children of disobedience who are in this world, the rest of humanity. Let's pick that apart. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Formerly, obviously, the way you Christian believers were before your conversion, before your new birth, before your salvation experience, the way you were before you believed in Christ, God the Redeemer. Though formerly walked, walked is pedipateo. Um, it is a corresponding word in ancient he Hebrew. It's a, it's a very ubiquitous ancient metaphor for the way you live your life. Your daily walk, your life walk, as we would say. Very common biblical metaphor for the conduct of a person's life, your lifestyle, your way of life. This was your way of life before your conversion. And according to the course of this world, or the way of a world that has fallen in rebellion against the Creator God, any and all things that belong to this rebellious world system that is an enmity against God. Paul means the controlling influence of this evil age before the next age is inaugurated. Uh, anything that has to do with any idea, any religion, any philosophy, any value system that is contrary to God, the one true living God, and His revealed truth. Also, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons or sons and daughters or children of disobedience. I've mentioned this to you before, but this is one of the most explicit books in the New Testament to teach you about the spirit world, the unseen world. And it's probably the strongest book in the New Testament to teach what we traditionally call spiritual warfare. And Paul is bringing this subject up again here, obviously. So what Paul now gives, you notice it's a second reason. It's a second very powerful influence that influenced fallen humanity before conversion, before the new birth. The formerly held Christian believers, all of us before our salvation, that held and that holds fallen human beings in slavery to their sin nature. He's making a reference to the evil one himself, humanity's ultimate spiritual enemy. Obviously a reference to Satan, and his attempted usurpations of this world, of God's creation. He dominates, he enslaves, he inspires, he influences sinful human beings. And also, um, remember what that old comedian Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it? We laugh at it. In a way that's true, in a way it's not. Evil spirits influence wicked human beings, but wicked human beings are guilty of their sin, all on their own, on our own, right? We cannot lay our wrongs and our faults and our failures and our sins all on the evil one. Oh, he is the originator of evil, and he is the inspiration of evil, the influence of evil. But we commit evil all on our own as fallen human beings. We fall in line with him. We fall in line behind Him. We join Him. We allow Him to dominate and to influence. And yes, Paul is reminding us, we do have a, humanity has a very real and very dangerous spiritual enemy. A spiritual tyrant. A tyrant who wants to lord it over God's creation and His creatures. Power of the air. Yes, He is powerful. 
His power is completely non-existent in comparison to the power of God, but comparison, in comparison to human creatures, oh yes, He is very powerful as an angelic being. He is powerful. Be on your guard, the apostle is warning. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And He will arm us in chapter 6. The air, it's an interesting thing to say. The prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to his domain, his modus operandi, the place where he moves about this world in rebellion against the Creator God. His sphere of influence. You could arguably translate this as the atmosphere about or in this fallen world. And you might find this interesting that this is the only time in the Bible that a biblical author speaks of the air or the atmosphere as the domain of Satan or the domain of spirit beings. Although it perhaps is implied in other places. But in ancient Judaism, and Paul would be very well aware of this, even the Gentiles would at this time. In ancient Judaism, the air all around us, the atmosphere around us, was firmly believed to be the realm of angels and demons. And this was universally believed by everyone, Jews and Gentiles, in Ephesus at the time that Paul is writing this letter. So Paul is inspired here to describe the unseen spirit realm that is alive and well and operating all around us, all of the time. The evil one, this prince of fallen angels who is powerful, who moves about upon the air, the atmosphere throughout this world, he is now working. This is in the present ongoing tense in which he writes this. Now works in the sons' obedience. You could translate that as, he is now powerfully working in sinful human beings whom he poetically calls the sons of disobedience, or the sons and daughters, the children of disobedience. Sinful human beings are in rebellion against God, just as he is. He powerfully works amongst them. He powerfully influences them. He powerfully dominates them. And was there ever a time in your life and my life when that was more agonizingly obvious than it is now? Look around you. Look around you. Open your eyes. Open your ears. This is agonizingly obvious. Should be. Sons of disobedience. Sons and daughters. It's a poetic way of saying all humanity. Every human being. Every human being lives this sort of a life in disobedience against the Creator God. In league with the evil one himself. The ESV study Bible gives you an interesting note here. I quote it, This expression, sons of this world, is a Hebrew-inspired phrase, very similar to the expression, sons of this world, as in contrast to sons of light, that we are given in Luke chapter 16, verse 8. They belong to that family, if you will, of those who rebel against the holy and true God. Such were we all before our conversion and our new birth in Christ. There's the reality. There's the bad news. There's the hard human condition. What is to be done? Verse 3. Paul really hammers it home here, doesn't he? He wants to make sure we understand the bad news completely before he gives us, before he impacts the good news. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by our very nature children of wrath even as the rest, or all the rest. So, among them we too all formerly lived. That is, all of us, all human beings are like this, living this way, spiritually dead. 
with the evil one in rebellion. All of us Christian believers were like this before our conversion, before our new birth. When he writes, lusts of our flesh, it's epithumeos tesarkos in the Greek. Pretty hard, pretty strong, blunt expression. Thumeo, or thumeos, or means desires. And by the way, folks, it just, it can mean a very good desire. It can mean a very bad desire. Here in this context, obviously a bad desire. And when you put the, the prefix epi, E-P-I, it really ratchets up the intensity of the word. So epithumios means really, really strong desires or impulses. In this context, very bad ones, evil ones, sinful ones. Now, when Paul refers to the flesh, a lot of folks, what, what does that mean? I mean, is he just literally referring to the, the physical body? Well, yes, but it's more than that. Uh, to make a long story short, when Paul uses this expression, the flesh, the old flesh, I battle the flesh, you battle your fleshly nature, what he's referring to is your sin nature. The flesh is sort of a shorthand pet expression for Paul, meaning your sin nature that you battle against, your sin nature that you needed to be saved from, your sin nature before your conversion. So you lived your life working out all these bad deeds in the body of the flesh because you were a slave to the very strong, wicked desires of the old sin nature. That's what he's saying. Very strong, negative desires or impulses of the old sin nature. We were slaves to that. Enslaved to old, sinful, negative desires of the sin nature before conversion. Of uh, desires of the flesh, he writes, and of the mind. Dianoia is, is the particular word he uses there for mind. It actually means the mind as in uh, your way of thinking, your intentions, your will, a person's rationalizations, the imaginations of your mind, your understanding. All of that was darkened. All of that was corrupt before conversion. Under the influence of the sin nature, this world, and the evil one. That's quite a fix. Sounds pretty hapless and hopeless. What is to be done? Again. And we were by our very nature, children of wrath, on our way to the judgment of God, even as all of the rest, all of the rest of humanity. Quote the ESV again, and then I'll quote a wonderful uh, few thoughts from Dr. Bow that he makes in his commentary. In your study Bible, you should have, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. The good doctor writes in his commentary, The fallen condition of all humankind is not the result of culture or mere social conditioning, but is such by nature. Let me say that again, because oh my, is that important in 2020. Secular humanism, which is a complete and total lie, completely contrary to the revealed truth of God, secular humanism basically wants to replace God with mankind. Man is the sum total of all things, as opposed to God being the sum total of all things. And secular humanism wants you to believe that mankind is basically born good, but we go bad somewhere along the way but with just the right nanny state type of government or social engineering or cultural control and engineering that a utopia, heaven on earth, can be created. A complete, total failure and a pernicious lie, which has led to the most destructive wars in human history and the most destructive atrocities in human history. 
That's what they want to bring to America, even as we speak. The false pagan religion and the false pagan god of secular humanism. The Bible teaches, of course, exactly the opposite. As Dr. Bow says, we are by nature evil and fallen and rebellious. We can only be made good by the Creator, Redeemer, God, and His divine plan. That is our only hope, He and He alone, and His divine plan. No amount of cultural or social conditioning will accomplish anything. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God-man, according to divine plan. All human beings, he writes, are, are in this fatal condition by the sin nature, born into his spiritual death, deserving of God's judgment. The human dilemma. Only Jesus, the God-man, was not born this way with a sin nature. And Jesus, the God-man, by entering this world without a sin nature, this enabled Him to be our hope, our sin-bearer, our Savior. Only He can save us from our sin nature, the sin nature that He did not have. Fallen human beings with a sinful nature in rebellion against God, living in accordance with that old fallen nature, it is a path of slavery that leads to God's wrath, His judgment. What's the result of this cosmic treason? How could the man possibly be any clearer here? God's wrath, His judgment that all rebellious human beings deserve. And this final remark, the theologian writes, this final remark that Paul gives us in this verse, even as the rest, this clarifies that this condition is characteristic of the entire human race. End to the quote. And Paul will make this case much more extensively in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Go back and read those chapters. What he tells us here in a few short verses in the book of Romans, he tells you graphically and in great detail in the first three chapters of the letter. You will see humanity and humanity's dilemma and condition in the first three chapters of that letter. And then he gives you the good news. Praise God. The Gospel. By the way, if you want to read much of American society and culture today, read the first three chapters of the book of Romans. A nation can't survive that. Something's going to have to give. Something must be done. Here it is, the dilemma, the condition, the sentence. There's a reality that we all, all must accept. But take heart. Now begins the good news. I will let you go home with the good news. In fact, the good news is so massive that we cannot possibly contain the good news in one morning. We're going to begin the good news today, and we're going to return to the good news next week. Here's the good news. Beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Here's the hope. Here's hope in God. Here's hope in Christ. We were not left hapless and hopeless. Praise God. In contrast to the hopeless state of the non-believer, the unrepentant person, 
Christian believers, those born of God, should absolutely exult in hope because of God's incredible grace and free gift of salvation. Paul will now, the ESV Study Bible tells you, Paul will now begin to accent this grace in contrast to the pre-Christ hopelessness that he analyzed in verses 1 to 3. Folks, this is the good news. This is the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the euangelion in the ancient Greek, which more specifically means good news from the battlefield. That's really what euangelion originally meant, good news from the battlefront, that a victory has been won. This is the ultimate good news, the ultimate euangelion, that the Son of God has won the victory from the ultimate battlefront. He has won the victory in our behalf conquering our haplessness, our hopelessness, and our despair in giving us all the hope we need, hope that is more than enough. The good news of the person and work of Christ. The answer to the bad news. We should never forget that God could have simply judged sinful humanity and been done with the matter. He was perfectly within His right to do so. He could have scrapped the entire plan at that point, absolutely eliminated and annihilated humanity, and started all over with another plan. It was perfectly within his right to do so. But he did not. Oh no. He kept us as part of the plan. He didn't scrap the original plan. He actually had salvation for fallen humanity as part of the original plan. A plan for salvation, a gracious plan according to Paul, a merciful plan according to Paul, to restore lost human creatures to our lost estate, as the old hymn writer would say, to our original purpose and meaning. What was our original purpose and meaning? Let us make man in our image, to glorify God and to bear His image and to enjoy Him forever. This plan of salvation is to restore you to the meaning and purpose for which humanity was created in the first place. But God. Those are the most wonderful words ever spoken or ever written. Hadetheos in the original Greek. Three words in the original Greek. Two words in English. But God. Two words or three of the greatest words of hope ever penned, the greatest words ever written, the greatest words ever spoken, the greatest words ever offered to anybody. The best news that any human being has ever heard, ever will hear or ever be confronted with, but God. You understand what he's saying there? He means, but God stepped in, but God entered to the rescue, but God took action, but God intervened. The God of hope, the God who is hope, the God who gives hope, He came to humanity's rescue even when humanity least deserved it. As I like to say so often in our prayers, He is our one and only hope, and He is more than hope enough. As the ESV Study Bible states, consult your study Bible again, folks. Dr. Bow gives a lot of wonderful comments in these verses in that study Bible. He writes, No hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that which awaits the forlorn company of mankind, marching behind the prince of the power of the air to their destruction under divine wrath. But just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, But God... God who is rich in mercy. God's mercy on helpless 
enemies, his helpless enemies, humans in rebellion. It flows from his own loving heart, not from anything that humanity has done to deserve it. End quote. He writes in his commentary, I love this paragraph as well. I kept coming back to this over and over and over. What a wonderful way he expresses this. Quote, the grim, plodding, hopeless announcement of human lostness, dead in sins, children of a fallen nature, slaves of the evil one, bound for judgment and wrath. It is shattered by a lightning bolt from heaven that Paul gives you here. Shattered by a lightning bolt from heaven, not in judgment, but in intervening mercy and love beyond all reckoning. God himself bursts on the scene to the rescue. The God who is rich in mercy, the God of abundant love. Yes, love for us. God's motivation, he writes, for reaching down to deliver human enemies from this hell-bound course of life is not because of anything found in them, anything found in us. It was because of His mercy according to His love. God has a loving and merciful nature. Praise God. End quote. Being rich in mercy. Plusios on eleos. Rich in mercy. By the way, Paul uses plusios for rich. By the way, folks, that is the strongest word in the Greek language to describe riches or wealth. That's how rich the mercy of God is. Extravagant, outlandish, almost indescribable, unbelievable wealth. That is how rich in mercy the sovereign God is. Eleos is mercy. It, it's actually an active word. An active word for mercy. Eleos means compassion which takes action. Undeserved compassionate love which someone translates into action. To bestow unmerited favor on somebody by really actively helping them. That's what eleos means. Active pity. Pity or mercy or compassion which takes action. You see what Paul is saying? God took action in our behalf when we least deserved it. Such is the extravagant mercy of God in Christ. And the Old Testament tells us exactly the same thing. We should bring the Old Testament into this story as well. Because as one of my professors back at Cedarville said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story that's so wonderful and so huge, it takes both testaments to tell. And the Old Testament tells us that this is God's nature and character, a loving and a merciful and gracious nature. Such is the rich mercy of God in Christ. He is the God of absolute justice. Yes, never forget that. But He is also the God of mercy and grace. I give you a quote from the book of Exodus. If you recall our study of the book of Exodus a few months ago. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the God, the one true living God, the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. End quote. So the coming of Jesus the Savior, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, according to divine plan, at the perfect time in history, His coming to earth in His incarnation without a sin nature, to perform His mission of atonement, His mission of redemption, this was the single greatest display of the tender mercy of God ever. 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 Let me repeat that again. 
The coming of Jesus, God the Son, the Savior, according to this plan of salvation. His coming to earth in His incarnation to perform His atoning work, to perform the work of redemption. This was the single greatest display of the tender mercy of the sovereign God ever, ever. Because of His great love with which He loved us, Paul writes. By the way, the word there for love is what? Agape. And I flat wore you out with that word when we studied the three letters of John, remember? John, the gospel of agape love. It's where Paul uses. God is the God of agape love, supernatural love, transcendent love, love which is of the very being and nature and character of God, the love which can only come from God. The love which human beings can only acquire by way of given as a gift from God. A gift of God. The highest, noblest, truest form of love. Sacrificial love. Truly triumphant love. Real love. The love that He gives to us, as Paul states here. And the love that after our new birth we receive as a gift. And we are to reciprocate back to Him. And that we are to shed abroad to our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because of His agape love and all that it means. The love with which He loved us. Great love. Polen agapein. You can translate this as abundant love. Do you see what the man is saying? He's saying God loved you with a love that is more than enough, more than efficient, more than sufficient to handle your sin problem and dilemma. This is how God in His loving nature loves us. Abundantly, greatly, more than enough, more than efficient and sufficient to save you. God's great abundant agape love is active in the divine plan through the Christ to save lost human beings like us. This love with which he loved what? What does it say? What does it say? Look, what does it say? With which he loved who? Us. Never forget that, brother and sister. That's what Paul is saying. He loved humanity when humanity least deserved it. You and I who are born of God, recipients of the new birth, this is the way he loved us. Never forget that. This is the way He loved we lost sinners. We redeemed sinners. We Christian believers. And the last word of the day, I give to theologian Clinton Arnold, who writes, Oh, all right, he is here. He writes, quote, For those who are painfully aware of their multiple sins, and their total inability to escape the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is overwhelmingly good news. End quote. News that's so good I can't possibly keep it all in one Sunday morning. We will return to the good news in verses 4 and 5 when we meet again next week. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter what's going on in the world around us, never forget, but God, who is rich in mercy, with the transcendent love with which He loved us. For you and I who are in Christ Jesus, who are recipients of the new birth, 
No matter what this side of eternity throws at us, truly from here it all gets better from here. On and on and on and on for forevermore, world without end. Amen. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful message of hope. May our brothers and sisters here and may those who are listening take this message of hope and apply it to their own life and apply this message of hope, ultimate hope, to others who desperately need this message of hope. You are our only hope. This world offers no hope. There is no other religion, no other philosophy, no other idea, no other concept that truly offers real hope and delivers it. Only you are hope. But you are the sovereign God, the infinite being who is more than hope enough for anyone and everyone. Help us truly appropriate this truth in our life, apply it to our life, and help others to do the same. And we worship you, and we glorify you, and we honor you that you are the compassionate, merciful God who took compassion and mercy on us when we least deserved it and lifted us up and placed us back on the path to achieving our real meaning and purpose in life. The meaning and purpose for which you made human creatures to glorify you, to bear your image, and to enjoy you forever. In the name of Jesus the Redeemer we pray. Amen.